this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Friday, May 17th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have all collectively, societally experienced a very sad loss. Tartar sauce, a mixed breed cat whose condition of feline dwarfism and underbite conspired to create a facial expression that read to humans as perturbed, gained fame when she was rechristened as Grumpy Cat. Grumpy Cat. By the way, notice how I said feline dwarfism. That's what all the news reports said. Feline dwarfism. They had to emphasize the feline part. As if we would say, wait, what kind of dwarfism did she have? I mean, she's a feline. That is the kind of dwarfism that felines get. When told of the news of Grumpy Cat's demise, Dramatic Chipmunk was, well, he was pretty shocked. That is an actual audio reaction. Dramatic Chipmunk will be a pallbearer for Grumpy Cat, along with Velociraptor, Socially Awkward Penguin, Sneezing Panda, and Doge. Grumpy Cat, if you only knew the joy you brought to our world. Oh, and I should say this song you're hearing that will be performed by Keyboard Cat at the funeral. Grumpy Cat, if you only knew the joy you brought to this world, perhaps you would be, dare I say, a wee bit less grumpy. Thus, of course, reversing the one characteristic which caused you to bring joy to the world, meaning your grumpiness would then be triggered again and, and it would renew the cycle anew. It is said, Grumpy Cat, that you died of a urinary tract infection, but I'd like to think that what was infected was all of our hearts. For a while, guilty-looking dog was suspected of foul play, but no, it was a UTI, and urinary tract infection, that felled poor Grumpy Cat. Grumpy, you will be missed. In other furry dead animal news, Bill de Blasio is running for president. No, Bill de Blasio is not a furry dead animal. It's just that whilst handling Staten Island groundhog, Staten Island Chuck, the mayor dropped the groundhog and the groundhog died as a result of the fall. That is perhaps an unfair element to emphasize in the de Blasio legacy. Also unfair, the New York Post headline, Everyone Hates Bill. And then consider the New York Daily News headline, Blas hits Prez Trail in Iowa and South Carolina. City is left rudderless. It's a little like the joke about the horrible restaurant that serves awful food and such small portions. Shouldn't this horrible mayor getting out of New York help New York? Getting his SUV off the road, parked outside of the gym that I walk past every day to go to the gym that I go to every day. Shouldn't that help? You know about this, right? Bill de Blasio drives. He doesn't drive. He is driven 11 miles from where he lives in upper Manhattan to Brooklyn, his old home in Brooklyn, to work out at the YMCA. And it is weird because I always wonder if I'm being foolish or indulgent as I pass that YMCA to walk to a gym that is 400 feet away. Because I say to myself, wouldn't it be smarter to go to the gym that was just slightly, slightly closer? Yes, 
it is a bit indulgent to go to the further away gym. If you're 11 miles away, it's more than a bit indulgent. Now that, that sort of thinking, plus 42% approval ratings against 44% disapproval ratings might convince a guy like me not to run, not Bill de Blasio. Now, we got to say that New York's a tough city. And if you have 2% net disapproval, that is what might in another city be called a glowing review, right? Coming from a New Yorker, 2% underwater, it's like four stars. But it also marks Bill de Blasio as among the least popular politicians in all of America. Seriously, Morning Consult gathers the polls of every senator and every governor, the polls from just their home states. So of the 50 governors, only four governors currently have more disapproval than approval. When the economy is going well, this happens. Of the 100 senators, exactly two have ratings that are as bad as Bill de Blasio has in his city. Those two are Mitch McConnell and Bob Menendez. The fourth least popular senator in her home state is Elizabeth Warren, by the way. She's at 49% approval and 40% disapproval, which is still much more popular than not. Bill de Blasio is, among politicians who represent a constituency the size of the constituency he represents, I looked at the top 10 cities also, he is, by these calculations, the seventh least popular politician in America. Another way of saying this is that Bill de Blasio's approval ratings are worse than 95% of the politicians in America. So I reiterate, Bill de Blasio's candidacy and Grumpy Cat are dead. On the show today, I spiel about stupid centrism as it relates to abortion. But first, the year was 1999. It was a great year for movies. We had The Phantom Menace. Oh, and also Election, Three Kings, The Matrix, Eyes Wide Shut, Fight Club, American Beauty, Sixth Sense, and yeah, yeah, that Jar Jar Binks jam. Brian Raftery has written a book dissecting that year and puzzling out what made it the best movie year ever. The name of the book is Best Movie Year Ever. The year in question is 1999. And I can, I can read you the subtitle to see if that convinces you. How about I just read you the names of some of these movies? Election, Rushmore, The Insider, Fight Club, American Beauty, Being John Malkovich, Three Kings, Matrix, Office Space, Blair Witch Project. Oh, my God. He makes a good point that he is Brian Raftery. We're going to talk about the movies of 20 years ago. Brian, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. What, was this well known? Did everyone realize that 99 was the best year ever? Or did you kind of put your finger on it and then get everyone immediately to agree with you? No, it was not, it's not my finger. Actually, I, uh, in 1999, Entertainment Weekly at the end of the year actually did a whole cover story before the year was over saying this is the year that changed movies and calling out the fact that Magnolia and Sixth Sense and Blair, which had all just happened. So there were people at the time who kind of recognized it. I think a lot of filmmakers at the time kind of recognized it too. But I think what what they were seeing at the time is they thought it was kind of the beginning of what was going to be this entirely new explosion of movies. Yeah. And I think now this year seems even more endearing because that kind of revolution didn't happen. I mean, right. you don't get a lot of years like this now, whereas back then the studios were giving all these young filmmakers tons of money and resources to make these incredibly personal, really kind of accessible, fun movies. Right, and the reason that 
it didn't become, or the reason why movies are the way they are and not as good, it's not, it's not the case that it's a variety of strands and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's really one big thing. Movies have become just vehicles for sequels and intellectual property. That's all they are. I mean, they're great little movies, but the big movies of the year these days are always going to be quasi-disappointing because they're not going to be original. Well, you do. I mean, there's a couple of big franchise movies in the last couple of years that I love. Like, I love Blade Runner 2049. I love Mad Max Fury Road, Look, I Black think, Panther. I think just in terms of craftsmanship and f- and solving a puzzle, the Avengers movies are fantastic. Yeah. And, and Black Panther's great. Yeah. But again, th- you can't compare taking this thing that everyone knows and doing it justice, which is the Avengers. There's not going to be the kind of amazing ideas inside the Avengers as there is in Iron Giant, Sixth Sense, Election, American Beauty, which actually I didn't love that much. Blair Witch, it's just Fight Club. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, and the big studios don't want to make those movies right now because there's no upside for them. Like, what is the point of taking a movie like The Insider, which is a a seventy million dollar R rated movie about a CBS investigation in the tobacco industry, which is also an amazing film. It's made by Michael Mann, who did Heat. It was like his follow up to Heat. It's watching Russell Crowe be like destroyed by this corporation. What is the upside of making that movie now? People aren't going to show. People have not read the comic book of The Insider. There's no yeah. there's no pre existing knowledge of it, and the studios really need to know within two to five million dollars how much money they're going to make on every movie they invest in and they have to know what it's going to make the opening friday yeah but these were all such great movies let's try to figure out the why of it first is the why for so many of them is what you said original filmmakers executing an original vision but is there an answer to what made their vision original that goes back maybe 20 years before when they were young and formulating their ideas about what a movie should be. I think so. I mean, so I did 130 interviews for this book and a lot of people I spoke to kind of came up either directly in the 70s watching those movies or kind of grown up on the myth of that. And I think one thing is that the studio executives back then, they were not, I mean, they were not naive. They had to make money, but they wanted movies to be proud of. So was there a sense that some of these filmmakers are going to be really difficult and you just (laughs) allow them to pursue their vision. I mean, that was an echo of Scorsese. Well, he wasn't so difficult, but definitely Coppola was. Sure. Right? That's a lesson of the the auteurs are going to make things and it's maybe going to be tough along the way, but the product's going to be standout. And maybe in 99 they were letting it and maybe now it's more corporate and you got to get along with everyone. Well, I think there was a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything as a non such a thing as a non difficult filmmaker. It's like, but I certainly look at nine nine people like, you know, David Fincher who made Fight Club. He was famously at odds with Fox a lot. You know, Mike right. Judge, who is not the kind of guy people think of as combative. He made Office Space, and he was sort of being bullied by the studio, and he kind of pushed back and made the movie he wanted to make. And I think you need filmmakers like that who are going to be. You need like whatever that kind of passion and kind of. Uh, craziness that filmmakers have, it mostly comes from wanting to make something really great. And you can see the result of that in, the, in that year, I think. American Beauty won the Oscar that year, Yeah, right? won Best Picture. So here's the deal with that. I don't think it was a very good movie, but if I would say, oh, you know, it's about the 25th or 30 best movie of the year, that tells you something about the year. Because it is a very, it's it's a, it's the director and writer's vision executed as perfectly as they would want. So you got to give it credit for that. Do, do you like American I, Beauty? You know, I did not like American Beauty yeah. when it came out, and I was kind of not excited about revisiting for this book. But I've watched it about four or five times since. And what's really interesting to me is that, you know, that's a movie that I kind of laughed at when I was younger, being like, oh, yeah, there's uh, these skeevy guys in the suburbs everywhere, and the next-door neighbor's a neo-Nazi sympathizer, right. and the kids are obsessed with cameras and guns. And it's like, well, 20 years later, it's like, those ideas seem actually pretty prescient. And I think that movie is also, 
it kind of speaks to what was going on in the culture that was reflected at that time. There was this real unease of this big Y2K of like, what's going on? What, where are we heading? Who are the people who live next to us? I mean, you know, all these movies, for the most part, came out right after Columbine, which was everyone in the whole country was kind of doing a double take. Like, wait, what's going on with the world? Are we not paying attention to, to each other? And what is, you know, why are we sort of in this sort of sense of real real kind of unease as, the, as you know, Y2K was coming? And I do think that Paul Thomas Anderson had done a magnus opus before in Boogie Nights. He would go on to do more in There Will Be Blood. But in terms of a fin de siècle, a millennial movie, Magnolia's it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the Plague of Frogs coming yeah. down at the sky. I mean, yeah. it's it's three. I mean, and Magnolia, a lot of these movies, it's very, I know a lot of people now like to play the, this would never get made now. But like Magnolia to me is absolutely the height of a young filmmaker. I mean, he was a young guy and New Line Cinema gave him around $40 million. They gave him final cut to make this three and a half hour movie or three hour, 15 minute movie. And they gave him Tom Cruise, who's the biggest superstar in the world in 1999. And they let him make this incredibly, uh, you know, like dense R-rated movie where Tom Cruise, who everyone loved, plays this really skeevy pickup artist who has a complete meltdown after his his secret life is kind of revealed. That's not a movie that a, an executive would feel comfortable signing off on. An executive wouldn't even read that script now by the yeah. tenth page, you know? yeah. My favorite movie of the year is Election. That's mine too. Oh, okay. I just can't oh, believe how... So, that makes me so happy because yeah. some people haven't seen that and it was not a hit when it came out. And That makes it, sense because it's the kind of movie, I always make this analogy, it reminds you of wearing a shirt or a sweater that's itchy. It just <laughs> is... But you love the sweater anyway. <laughs> something. You put yourself in it and there's just so much discomfort or you only got two hours sleep last night and it just is so uncomfortable, so physically uncomfortable watching so much of that movie but it's also so spot on and I love the Tom Parada movie it I mean I love the Tom Parada book it's That's a great book oh my a, gosh it's so good it's, it's such fantastic. a fan it's such a fantastic movie and I guess it does wind up I don't know if it winds up commenting on 1999 it seems to comment on everything that happens with say female political candidates afterwards oh I think that movie is absolutely like that feels to me like it could have been made yesterday and you'd be like oh this is a 2019 movie almost more than any of these films I mean it is so it's touching on so many things of class uh, about gender relations and about Politics. I mean, there's a, there's a scene where, um, you know, it's about this high school presidential race, and there's one candidate, Tammy Metzler, who just gets into the race just to talk about how pointless and nihilistic politics are. She yeah. gives this giant speech, and I watched it a couple years ago, and I was like, this is, like, basically what Steve Bannon was saying. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. it's that same kind of, like, burn-it-all-down political approach. And, I mean, look, it's a movie about a really ambitious, talented female presidential candidate who goes, runs up against a really kind of dopey rich guy who doesn't know why he's doing this and that yeah. feels pretty uh that feels pretty relevant to our last presidential election that actress who pay, who played tammy metzler she was in one episode of freaks and geeks she played uh i think an intersex character and i've never seen her oh again. it's interesting yeah i don't think she i don't think she is acting anymore and but you know the rest of that cast it's like chris klein is fantastic in that yeah. movie and i talked to them i talked to reese witherspoon i talked to matthew broderick who was wonderful in that movie and i think weirdly when people talk about the oscars that year people get very frustrated about the injustices and the best picture categories but i category but i really think reese witherspoon and matthew broderick not being nominated for oscars that year is insane those are two i mean that is the best matthew broderick performance i think uh, on screen and reese witherspoon it's like that's what i mean that's that's how everyone kind of got to know her i mean she'd been big before that but i mean that's such an iconic role so what are some movies that may be going into this project you didn't realize you'd have to cover and you did and you put up there with the other ones in this pantheon um you know there's a whole chapter on um two movies that i really liked in 1999 that i didn't know i'd be able to go into in such depth 
which are The Best Man and The Wood. Yeah. And I wanted to put them in there because they were both hit movies. The Best Man's actually one of the few original movies from that year to have a sequel. It came out like 13 years later. But I really want to include them because I do think one of the things that happened in the, in the 90s that kind of paid off in 99 was there was a really remarkable African-American film uh, renaissance. I mean, if you start with Do the Right Thing in 89 and you go through Boys in the Hood and you go through all these movies like Love Jones, which is a great movie, and Waiting to Exhale, which were quote-unquote surprise hits. You had this whole thing throughout the 90s where an African-American made film would open at a, number one or number two and people would be like, how did this happen? And it's yeah. like, well, it keeps happening. And The Best Man and The Wood are both much like other 1999 movies, they're made by two young first-time filmmakers. Malcolm Lee wound up making Girls Trip a couple years ago, and Rick Famuyi was working on The Mandalorian, the Star Wars show, and they're major talents who kind of arrived. Oh, I think he's directed, like, more... I think he's the African-American director who has made the most money at his movies. Rick Famuyi? Yeah, I May, think so. I wonder. Oh, Spike is probably the... I mean, Spike's still... Yeah, like, but I don't know how many of his movies have actually made tons of money in the box office. I'm trying to think. I mean, Sp- yeah. definitely, inside, definitely Inside Man was... A, Inside Man and Black Klansman did really well. But they're both, you know, I think those movies are really important, and I think they proved that it wasn't just Fight Club and The Matrix and these big movies that were kind of making these big proclamations. It was also just a lot of filmmakers getting their first shot and getting the resources to make the movies they want to make. And they connected with audiences. I don't, we're not going to be able to hit all the ones you talk about, but why do you pair Eyes Wide Shut with The Mummy? For, well, first of all, Eyes Wide Shut's a very heavy movie to have all by yourself. But I was really <laughs> yeah. interested because I wanted, you know, one thing that doesn't exist anymore that really was there in the late 90s, throughout the 90s, was the sort of $20 million star. Uh-huh. So you have... Harrison Ford, Julia Roberts, Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, Schwarzenegger, all of these guys, almost exclusively guys actually, making these 20 million paydays. And Cruise was the biggest. I mean, Cruise was so powerful that, you know, he made Eyes Wide Shut. That process took close to two years. And it basically shut down Hollywood. I mean, his Mission Impossible movie had to get bumped a couple years. All these projects. And so I wanted to pull in The Mummy because I think what's interesting about Brendan Fraser's career is that he came up from this mix of, I'm going to do an indie, then I'm going to do a major. I'm going to do an indie, then I'm going to do a major. Which one is, for you, one for me. Yeah, which was kind yeah. of the 90s philosophy. And by the time The Mummy came along, the studios are like, hey, we need more Tom Cruises, but Tom Cruise is really expensive and he, we can't get him for five years. So how do we sort of turn these actors into big stars? I think The Mummy was kind of a big moment for Brendan Fraser where they literally turned him into an action figure. I mean, this was a guy who'd start off doing, you know, school ties and now he's chasing, you know, the undead through tombs. And I think that's kind of, you can kind of see where movie stars were going to be directed in the next 20 years, which is toward franchises and, and toward these sort of big character roles they can do with a lot of CGI. Is that, also fun. I think it's kind of a fun movie. Is there cross-pollination? Did some of the directors or some of the people you talk about said, I saw this movie and it made me make the next movie? I saw this other movie that came out this year and that was really influential on me? I think these movies all kind of fed into one another. I mean, what's weird is that there are certain people like Sofia Coppola who, you know, Sofia Coppola made The Virgin Suicides. It was her first yes. movie. It came out in Cannes in 1999. But she she also, weirdly, you know, she was married to Spike Jones that year, so she was on the set of being John Malkovich. She visited Spike Jones on the set of Three Kings. She starred in The Phantom Menace. She played a small role. So a lot of these filmmakers were kind of around each other and circulating, and they all became friends. I mean, David O. Russell, Kim Pierce, David Fincher, and Soderbergh. I mean, Fincher and Soderbergh are still really good friends. Um, they still talk a lot. Um, so you definitely could see they were kind of influencing and probably competing with one another. And you can see that year, I am sure that each one of those filmmakers was going to the movie theater and watching their friends moving, being like, oh, I got to top this. Or I got to do, I have to make something as good as this, you know? All right. So we didn't talk about this. It's the, uh, it's the Jar Jar in the room, but what, <laughs> how does the Phantom Menace fit in if it does? It's, you it's know, a big movie of the year. Yeah, Grant, you have to put it in there. Um, and there's two major reasons. One is that, you know, I'm, old enough to have not liked The Phantom Menace. But I also, 
I think that when you have a canon of like, this is the best movie and this movie's great, this one's bad, you have to acknowledge that that's going to change. And there's a lot of young people who really do love The Phantom Menace. They were four, five, six, seven when they saw it. And for them, it was kind of their first big movie the same way that A New Hope was one of the first big movies for Mm -hmm. me. I also think it's an incredibly important movie because not only was it the number one movie of that year, it would have been the number one movie of the 90s if it weren't for Titanic. But the buildup to that movie, the way it was hyped on the internet, the way people reacted on the internet, I think that movie sort of showed how movies were going to be marketed and how they were going to be received You know, going forward. I mean, Star Wars fans online now, everyone's like, boy, all these Star Wars fans online are really angry and vocal. It's like... Were you on the internet in 1999 when they were all losing their minds yeah. over Jar Jar Binks? That, you know, the actor who played Jar Jar Binks suffered terrible abuse online just because he was in a, a movie for kids, basically. And I think it fits in there, maybe uncomfortably. Leave but you, Jar Jar alone! But you can't talk about 1999 and not talk about Star Wars. You know, it's yeah. not talk about Phantom Menace. It hovered over everything. And until it arrived, people were really just losing their minds over it. And then yeah. they started losing their minds over it for, for, for different reasons. So, but the, the weird thing is what the Phantom Menace represents is, hey, let's let someone with unique artistic vision have the free reign to execute their vision. And... I'm going to say it wasn't good. Every other one of these movies is also that, but Mm. the good side. And I'm wondering if there's something about the imposition of limitations Mm. that makes the artistry better. Because I also think Eyes Wide Shut is, of, of all the movies that were interesting or great movies, I'm not saying it's not interesting, but it's not a great movie, and it's not, I think, a great Kubrick movie. And that's also maybe a case where Kubrick had more of free reign than Alexander Payne when he was doing election, mm. than Mike Judge when he was doing Office Space, than Charlie O'Kaufman Kaufman when he was doing uh, Malkovich. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Kubrick, if you look at Kubrick and Lucas, they're actually really interesting to talk about because they're both making their first movie in more than a decade. They both are responsible for, like, the two biggest science fiction movies of the 60s and 70s, you know, 2001 and Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And they both got to do pretty much every single thing they wanted. I mean, Warner Brothers gave Kubrick so much creative freedom. They gave him Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. They did not bother him on set. They let him do whatever he wanted. And I don't think Lucas had any sort of control either because he was self-funding it. And you see, yeah, I mean, I think both of those filmmakers probably could have used some collaborators or some back steps to sort of like, uh, could you maybe figure out what's going on in the scene and why do we have these kind of characters but I think I like Eyes Wide Shut a lot more than you do but it's not finished I mean it's the thing he died yeah. Kubrick died before it came out so one thing that's so fascinating about this movie is like are, is this the movie is this what it was supposed to be you kind of get a sense that he was closed off from how modern relationships and conversations were working sure. but there's also amazing stuff in that film and look the people still talk about the you know the one piano plank when these, when Tom Cruise winds up in this orgy and this is also, this is a crazy movie for Tom Cruise to make. He was a very safe movie star. He didn't make these kind of movies. And he makes Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut within the same year. And they're both sex-obsessed characters or sex-driven characters. And he never did anything like that again. He never did. Now, he, I love that he jumps off planes and jumps onto planes. But he doesn't do those kind of roles anymore, which is a little disappointing for me as someone who really liked his 90s work. The year was 1999. The book is Best Movie Year Ever. And we've been speaking with Brian Raftery who went inside 1999 and brought back these stories. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. 
The frontal assault on abortion rights is pretty shocking and a case can be made pretty stupid. Or maybe there's something about it I'm not getting. I do know that it exposes the limits of centrism as a political philosophy. I've always said centrism is stupid. It's in fact not a philosophy. It's an averaging and a rough one at that. The centrist position between Galileo and the church's dogma of geocentrism would be, well, maybe we can all agree that the earth revolves around the moon. So there is no centrism between abortion rights that Americans are entitled to and a lack of these rights. Alabama, Georgia, Missouri, and the like are in violation of the Constitution, full stop. And also, laws, recently passed laws in some states, they were on the books in others, that allow abortion 24 weeks into pregnancy if the health of the mother is threatened and if the fetus would be unable to survive outside the womb. Those are the right laws. By the way, 19 states have those laws. Virginia, New York, Tennessee, Utah, Wyoming. There are some strange bedfellows there. And we shouldn't give in or waver on those correct laws just because some other states have enacted a draconian policy. That would be an example of stupid centrism. When you take an average of the right and the wrong, you get something that is worse than right. And fewer of our abortion rights is exactly what the anti-abortion forces want to force upon us. But is that their whole play? Is it a whittling away of the rights we have? The one thing I don't understand is how these blatantly unconstitutional challenges would help the anti-abortion forces. Please don't tell me it riles up the base. Everything riles up the base. Seems to rile up the other side at least as much as the base. But my question is this. Okay, so Georgia and Alabama, those laws go into effect. It'll be in a few months. The day they go into effect, opponents will file suit. Every legal expert say the lower courts will definitely uphold those suits. There will be a stay issued. Those laws will be considered facially unconstitutional. Appeals courts have to agree. And then the question is, what does the Supreme Court do? And many people, even anti-abortion activists, are saying it's kind of unlikely that the Supreme Court will take up these cases. So how does all that help anti-abortion activists? Won't the denial of cert hurt the anti-abortion cause? Won't it be a rebuke? Or is it the case that they expect the court not to hear the first case? That was always priced in. And they figured the court wouldn't hear the second version of the case. But eventually, if they keep passing these unconstitutional laws, the court's going to say, okay, this keeps happening. We have to hear the case. And if that only happens, the the court hearing the case, that only happens after the second or third set of unconstitutional laws are passed, then to get there, you would have had to have passed what just happened, these first set of unconstitutional laws. Maybe that's the justification or the strategy of the forces of anti-abortion. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but luckily I have someone who is. Linda Greenhouse covered the court for the New York Times for decades. She's now a professor at Yale Law School. Hello, Linda. Thank you for joining me. Ah, My pleasure. So my question is this. These laws, we are told, are pretty clearly unconstitutional, will probably, when they go into effect, will probably not be allowed to actually go into effect. There'll be, there'll be a stay. And then there, the presumption is the Supreme Court may very well not even hear them. Uh, before I ask my question, do you doubt any points in that process that I've laid out? No, I think that's exactly right. Then are the entities, the legislatures, passing the law, not playing the long game? Are they doing something tactically wrong in passing these laws that will just go nowhere? 
whether it proves to be tactically wrong, of course, we don't know. But I think one potential consequence of it, these laws are 1,001% extreme. Mm-hmm. They can only stand if the court overturns Roe against Wade on its face. However, there's a bunch of other cases that would have uh, almost equally drastic effects on the ability of women to actually get abortions, even if abortion remains technically a constitutional right. And what I'm afraid of is that when the court enables those less drastic on their face, but equally drastic in their function laws to take effect, the public will kind of shrug and say, oh, well, the court is, it's a compromise. You know, it's a compromise between the extreme and the status quo and the court has come down somewhere in the middle. Right, right. That's exactly what I was talking about where I was I was just, I'm, I don't like the label centrist because this is the perfect example where centrism is not the moderate or prudent way. It's in fact, maybe even being dictated to us consciously by one side of the debate. Oh, I'll give you uh, a centrist place that actually results in uh, an abridgment of rights. Yes, that's right. And so I think it falls to those of us in the media to be extremely attentive. There's a case tending at the court now a law that from Louisiana that requires doctors who perform abortions to get admitting privileges at local hospitals. Uh, The appeals court upheld that law, so it's a pro-choice appeal. And what's very striking about this, among other things, is that it's exactly the same law that the the Supreme Court in 2016 overturned in Texas. So the court now has a choice. They either have to strike the law down or overturn whole women's health. So that is my question. How do these recent laws, these facial challenges to Roe versus Wade, how do they work in concert with and maybe bolster the other kinds of laws that you're talking about, the ones that whittle away at Roe, this, these pro-life by a thousand cuts laws? How I'm wondering if the new sets of laws that just pretty much ban abortion, either at conception or at six weeks, Will their being stayed and not reviewed be seen as a rebuke, or do they somehow embolden the other kinds of laws that you're talking about? The laws that impose restrictions without flatly declaring that Roe is a non-entity, which is what these the laws of the last week do, uh, actually are first in the queue. There are some that are actually pending. There's an Indiana law that forbids abortion if the reason for the abortion is the fetus has a serious disability or choice of gender or some such thing, which of course is a preposterous intrusion on a woman's privacy, actual privacy, um, that's pending now for the court to decide whether to take it. These laws that just got passed this week and or within the last couple of weeks in, in Georgia, Alabama, last night, Missouri, no court has yet dealt with them. And so they'll come along later uh, at a time when we have a better sense of what the Supreme Court landscape may be. And, uh, you know, that's that's the big unknown. Do you think that it is uh, possible or is this how the court works that a state or a bunch of states pass laws, they immediately get struck as unconstitutional 
And maybe the same thing happens again and the same thing happens again. And not much is changing except for the fact that it keeps coming up over and over. And then at some point does the uh, the court, without a whole lot of different set of legal questions to grapple with, maybe just say, okay, n- now's the time. I've been watching the court for a mere four decades. And I cannot remember anything remotely like this. So there's really, we don't have a template to to compare this to uh, the, the notion that, uh, you know, one new justice is going to change lives for 50% of the population of America by o- voting to overturn something that's been on the books now for two generations. I mean, it's the whole scenario is just unthinkable. So I, again, I'm just saying to myself, well, if the laws are going to be disallowed because of the constitution and the court won't listen to it, then Maybe you could make the case that, you know, it galvanizes a base of pro-abortion forces, but what does it really do to take away abortion rights? Unless what it is is laying the groundwork. And on the first bite of the apple, the court would never take the case, but maybe it would on the fourth bite of the apple, but you can't get to the fourth bite of the apple until you make this first knowingly failed bite in the first place. That's what I'm wondering about. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the other side of the coin, which is, you know, we have a pro-choice majority in the country, and that is still the case, at least as far as abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy goes. And so you could also see a scenario where the great silent majority sees this happening, and at first they think, well, this is very unfortunate, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. But as the issue gets heightened and heightened and heightened by going back and back and back, you could see mobilizing the base on the other side to say, wait a minute, what, you know, what theocracy are we living in today? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Linda Greenhouse, Yale Law Professor. Thanks so much. Okay. My pleasure. There's one more aspect of not falling into stupid centrism on this issue. The Democrats have to hold their presidential candidates to account. The Republicans, yeah, the Republicans, right. So far, we have seen Kirsten Gillibrand going to Atlanta in solidarity. Elizabeth Warren, you heard some of uh, the video she put out. We played that on yesterday's show. Kamala Harris raised $160,000 for abortion rights in response to these laws. All of the male candidates have spoken out forcefully. Cory Booker calls an assault on human rights. Bernie Sanders calls it an utter disgrace. Pete Buttigieg says the Alabama legislature is ignoring science, criminalizing abortion and punishing women. Beto O'Rourke says it's a radical attack. Steve Bullock says it's irresponsible and dangerous. I'm not going to go through them all, but why not go through Steve Bullock every once in a while? But all the candidates are against what Alabama and Georgia is doing. I was quite interested to see how the front runner would react, Joe Biden. Joe Biden seems very against what Alabama has done. Uh, I'll read his quote. Republicans in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Ohio are ushering laws that clearly violate Roe v. Wade and they should be declared unconstitutional. Roe v. Wade is settled law and should not be overturned. This choice should remain between a woman and her doctor. The New York Times quotes an activist with the organization's supermajority as saying Biden and Buttigieg did not go far enough, though their statements are 100% against these laws and for Roe. I do think Joe Biden's stance bears watching. If Biden tries to in any way middle ground this issue, it will be really disappointing. Biden has a less than perfect record in protecting abortion rights. And I mean that literally less than perfect. Here are the stats. Uh, Narrell gives a score. And in the dozen years before becoming a vice president, Narrell, which used to be the Abortion Rights League, but then just became one of these one of these uh, acronyms that were unmoored 
to a foundational text. Anyway, Narrell gave Joe Biden a 100% rating four times, but gave him a below a 50% rating four times. A lot of the foregrounding of his supposed middle groundedness on the campaign trail has been the media or Joe Biden's opponent's invention. For instance, maybe you heard that he endorsed a middle ground stance on climate change. It's not actually true. He doesn't seem to have a middle ground stance between, say, the Green New Deal and a James Inhofe fairy tale. It just seems like he believes the most aggressive goals of the Green New Deal are not doable. I don't really know. He's not unveiled his exact plan. My point is that calling his stance on climate change middle ground seems inaccurate. But on this issue, abortion rights, this is an issue where middle grounding is deadly grounding and where stupid centrism is just the skewed stance to take. I do not exactly know if the right's game plan is a clever one. I do know the leftists, moderists, centrists or Obamacists or whatever you want to call these people, they need to be united on one position, the right position, that abortion rights are human rights and women's rights, and most importantly, constitutionally settled rights. And anything less is wrong. And that's it for today's show. You know, every week we, we can, if you so subscribe, send you a newsletter. It's at slate.com slash gist news. And in that newsletter, there'll be an answer to a trivia question. This is the trivia question. In the novel upon which one of the movies from 1999 was based, the central event depicted was said to be mentioned on NPR as one of their human interest squibs, quote, not headline news, but a curiosity, something people could listen to and shake their heads about. What 99 movie had that line, that sentiment expressed in its novel? Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Both were excited to learn that Duck's quack in French like this. Quack, quack, quack. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She has to endure a work environment where two adult men sit next to her repeatedly saying, quack, quack, quack. The gist. We're, we're a bit of a human interest squib ourselves. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. Meow, meow. Meow. Whew. That's the thing we made. <laughs>